Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. KCBS Radio. Original podcasts. It was quickly determined that Jane Stanford was poisoned. But David Starr Jordan and other university officials were desperate to prevent that from becoming the official story. It opened up too many questions. Questions that could lead to a challenge to Jane's will and threaten the university. So David Starr Jordan and his party of conspirators arrived in Hawaii on March 10, 1905, the same day the coroner's jury verdict is published. David was stuck on the boat during the proceedings, where the coroner's jury heard from the main witnesses to Jane's death. Bertha, despite appearing like a nervous wreck, managed to give a complete and seemingly accurate account. At the same time, a group of experts presented their evidence of strychnine poisoning, which included a normal procedure for the time, blending Jane's organs together to see if the mixture would result in a faded purple color, indicating the presence of the poisoning. It was also noted that whatever strychnine had been used in this poisoning was different from the first. This time, the poison was pure, the type you couldn't just get over the counter as rat poison. This kind would need to be acquired through some sort of medical channel. The jury reached their conclusion the night before David landed on the island. The newspapers published the results the next day. Jane had been murdered. From KCBS Radio and Odyssey, I'm Natalia Gurevich, and this is Bitter Academia, Episode 5, Family Ties. The details of the poisoning were muddied from the start. Certain elements, where the bicarbonate of soda had been purchased, where the bottle containing the soda had come from, what medicine Jane had used that already had strychnine in it, if you're not confused, I certainly am. And so were others. Some newspapers fixated on one angle over others. Questions remained unanswered as Bertha began to change the details of her story. As she would again and again. As the days wore on, the other servants that had been in Jane's orbit, her former butler, her former maid, all wing at the Knob Hill house, as well as Bertha began to fall under suspicion. To avoid scrutiny, one servant would seemingly implicate another, particularly in the first poisoning attempt, until the police, as well as the media, were noticeably exhausted. But the newspapers in the Bay Area were not ready to quit, far from it. 
outlets that still exist today as well as ones that don't, were doggedly suspicious over the entirety of this case that something nefarious was going on. Laying the blame on David, on Jane's lawyer, Mountford Wilson, both or others. This confusion allowed David to covertly circle his wagons. To help further his conviction that Jane had died of natural causes, he engaged the services of a Dr. Waterhouse. Waterhouse spent an afternoon interviewing Bertha and May. Based on these new interviews and not the coroner's jury, Waterhouse claimed that there was not enough evidence to conclude that Jane had died from strychnine. She had only suffered a single spasm, not multiple. The theory put forth by Waterhouse was that Jane had overeaten at lunch, causing gas, which had added pressure to her heart. Keep in mind, the autopsy had found no food in her stomach. But Waterhouse claimed the autopsy results were weak. In the end, Waterhouse put these findings in his own report. Just a few days of paid work that David was able to use to his advantage, time and time again as long as he never actually published it and revealed the contradictions in it. In the process, it became clear that David and Bertha needed each other. David needed a witness who could back up his natural death conclusion, and Bertha needed a powerful ally to support her innocence. Soon, David was publicly proclaiming Bertha's innocence and highlighting her years of dedication to Jane. The only person in Jane's circle who believed and said so publicly that she was poisoned was George Crothers. On March 14, 1905, David and Timothy Hopkins, the board of trustees member Jane also planned to fire, made a statement that the death was from natural causes. The next day, both men served as pallbearers in a funeral service for her in Hawaii. The statement wouldn't be released until the two men boarded the ship home a few days later with Jane's body. Even though she was gone, her presence still loomed large in the lives of those around her, those whose lives would never truly be free of her influence, despite their best efforts to bury her and her story. While Bertha and David don't appear to have much in common, one is a scientist and academic and the other is a secretary, they share two important things, their relationship with Jane and their self-preservation in the wake of her death. Why Bertha Berner and Jordan, they clearly are working together because I, in a sense, because she is um, giving him documents for one reason or another. This is Richard White again, the historian and author extraordinaire whose book became my Bible during this project. My copy is feathered with sticky notes. While Richard believes the two formed an alliance, he doesn't believe that David is a conspirator in Jane's murder. His reasoning is quite simple. In the end, I thought, well, he had the motive, he might have had the means, but in the end, I don't think he had the courage and he wasn't really smart enough to be able to do it. Richard was my first interview for this story. Even before reading his book and my interview with him, I had come to the same conclusion that he and others had. Bertha Burner poisoned Jane. 
Jane Stanford was given strychnine twice, and only one person was present at both poisonings. It's really hard to see how that person is not going to be a suspect. And you become even more curious when virtually everybody around the case begins to insist that that person is not a suspect. That's what got my curiosity going around Bertha Burner, but the problem I faced was the more I went into it, the more suspects I found. There were plenty of people who hated Jane Stanford. My reasoning for suspecting Bertha was not as sophisticated as Richard's. In my initial research, I did note that she was present at both poisonings. My other main hunch, she was a woman. As a true crime obsessive, it's a common assumption that poison is a woman's weapon. When men want to kill someone, they hire a hitman, stage an accident, or do it themselves. It's messy. But women, women usually go the poison route. It's neat, tidy, and efficient. Of course, later on, my poisons expert, Dr. Katherine Watson, was quick to disabuse me of this notion. I'm also curious, like, in terms of all of the poisonings and, and the history of this that you've studied, everyone always says that poison is, is a woman's weapon. And oh, I kind of just wanted to know what your thought true. was with that. <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. However, what I have to confess is true is that if you look at the proportion of all murderers, it's 90% are men and 10% are women, if you exclude infanticide. 19th century, 20th century, really today, 90 to 10. But if you look at the proportion of killers who choose poison, it's more like 50-50, okay. which does mean that female killers are more likely to choose poison than male killers are. What makes poisoners different from typical murderers? Oh, that's a good question. Well, think about what goes into poisoning. It's planned and you have to get close enough to the victim, not always, but usually to give them the stuff. And really it means that you're not flying off the handle. It's not a murder carried out in, in hot blood like where you just lash out at somebody or you have a gun and you shoot them or you stab them or you beat them to death. You have to go and buy the stuff. You have to put it into something that they eat or drink. You have to give it to them. And then a lot of times you know them well enough that you then hang around while they linger and die. That's That requires something a little bit different. But in the 19th century, so I think the question nowadays is, is harder to answer. In the 19th century, it was what a lot of people did, but still a tiny minority of all killers. It's, it requires a certain cold-bloodedness, perhaps, but also the belief that you can do it and get away with it. And of course, there is an unknown number of people who have been um, successful. You can be either well-known or you can be successful as a poisoner. You can't be both. That's what toxicologist um, John Trestrail says, and I, I think that's quite true. You can either be famous or you can be a successful poisoner. And the ones that we know about are famous because they were not successful. In this case, Bertha Burner might have been both. She's not exactly famous, but she was, at least at the time, well-known. 
Even though I suspected Bertha Burner from the beginning, I didn't have the answer to her motivations. From what I knew on the surface level, I assumed that David Starr Jordan was the mastermind behind the plan, and he somehow got Bertha to carry it out for him. But again, I was convinced otherwise, this time by Richard. Okay, so then my next question is, besides, besides Bertha, who presented the next most compelling case? Um, Jordan. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> Jordan knew. I mean, that's one of the things the students hadn't found out, but my further research found out is that Jordan knew that um, Jane Stanford was going to fire him when she came back from that trip. Um, and Jordan also seems to know that she's not coming back from that trip because he fires um Julius Goebbels, yeah. who is his main enemy on the faculty and is somebody who is supported by Jane Stanford, which would have been a rash move if he thought Jane Stanford was coming back. So I thought, well, you know, he certainly has the motive. Um, he certainly acts as if he knows that <laughs> she is not going to come back from her Asian trip. And um, he's a scientist, so he should have had access to strychnine. But Bertha Berner also had a possible source for strychnine, a fellow German, a pharmacist in Palo Alto that she reportedly got cozy with right before the trip, and who subsequently seemed to have disappeared afterward, despite investigators' best efforts to find him. Wouldn't it make more sense for two to be working together rather than just one on their yeah, own? That's what you're thinking, like the detectives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I guess that's and, true. And that's what Bertha Berner told her mother because her mother said it was it was somebody and a man uh, okay but so there's a lot of combinations a man could have been david star jordan and bertha burner um it could have been elizabeth richmond and the butler mm -hmm. you know alf beverly um and it could have been ah wing and some sort of female accomplice um so there is everybody thought at the time it's going to be two what they're doing the that story is wonderful for Berner because what it means is it takes suspicion away from her if she was acting by herself. And the other one was is a sort of, um, you know, sort of sexism that comes in. This kind of murder had to be masterminded by a man someplace. Okay, yeah. It couldn't just be a woman who did it. Even though the papers will also play up the other part of it by pointing out that poison was in the early 20th century, at a least according to these weapon. papers, a woman's weapon. Mm -hmm. So there's all of these things come in. So who they're going to suspect has an awful lot to do with the culture of the times. Mm -hmm. But Bertha Berner is a smart person. <laughs> and, and so it would not at all surprise me that she would tell her mother that there was a man involved in this. Based on the details available, Bertha makes the more likely suspect while David's role just conveniently falls into place. The execution was remarkably sloppy. Yeah. And what Jordan is good at is covering things up. That's where Jordan enters. I have mm -hmm. no doubt about the cover-up. Um, and that Jordan, you know, himself um, is quick to move in because he realizes precisely because the murder was so sloppy, this is just going to blow up in my face. And he's on the ship and he's on his way to Hawaii. And he's mortified that the, the um, coroner's jury met before he got there. But so he still does the repair work. And Richard isn't the only one sold on this sequence of events. For Laura Jones, Stanford's archaeologist, her suspicion of Bertha began in a much more insidious way. 
I met with Laura twice, once in person and once over Zoom. When I first met with Laura, we sat in an unused little conference room in her office in Redwood City, one town over from Stanford. Its minimalist and austere setting was a far cry from the excavation work she has to do, just like she did on Bertha Berner's old house in the 1990s. I also got a inquiry from real estate developer who had bought Bertha Berner's house. Oh, okay. And needed to find somebody to write him a historical report. And, and it was it was actually Bertha Berner's carriage house. Sorry, for those who don't know, can you just explain what a carriage house yeah, is? Yeah, so she had a house and, um, and then they had a, a, a separate outbuilding where you kept your horse and your carriage. And often there's a little apartment upstairs where your coachman lives, mm-hmm. right? And so it can be a fairly substantial building. So this gentleman said, I, I hear you know a lot about Jane Stanford because we were in the paper often on doing this dig at Jane Stanford's house, right? And, you know, I have this house that Bertha Berner lived in and I need to know more about its history. And so I, you know, I did a few hours of research um, just because I was curious about the Berners. What Laura found made her suspicious. Despite the inheritance from Jane and the substantial salary Bertha had received from Jane all those years, the family was struggling enough that 10 years after Jane's death, They moved out of the main house and, as Laura said, into their carriage house. They had to rent out the main house to make money. Bertha's mother died the same year as Jane. Bertha's brother Augustus had no known ailments but for some reason didn't have a steady job. This seemed odd to Laura. And I thought, well, that's interesting, right? Yeah. That she doesn't, she needs, I mean, this is a pretty, this is a pretty rough financial state to be in, that you move into your garage. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But that's really, that's really all I knew. I sort of pieced together. And I remember looking them up in the census and Augustus Burner is like, doesn't he have a job? And he has a very strange sequence of jobs, none of which appears to be very stable. Okay. He's a mining engineer, but he never appears to actually work at a mine. He's a farmer, he's a capitalist, but you can't really see that he has an employer. And so um, I thought, this is just all strange. It's just strange to me, right? So I just sort of filed that way in the back of my head. Yeah. And then Jane, and then Bertha, every few years, would write another book about Jane Stanford for yeah. money, right? So yeah. I just odd. They just seemed to have run out of money. The next time Laura really thought about it was in 2003, when the first book about Jane's murder by the since-past Robert Cutler came out. The book convinced her, as it had me, that Jane had been poisoned. But others wouldn't believe it. On a trip to the Stanford mansion in Sacramento around the same time, Laura heard from those at the museum who still clung to the narrative about Jane's death. A couple of these volunteers are, are, are um, you know, steeped in the history of the Stanford family. We're busy telling me why Bob Cutler was wrong. Oh. And that of course she hadn't been murdered and that she just took too much patent medicine. And so the cover-up was sort of continuing in this conversation. All right. And that, I found that intriguing. Yeah. Right? That people were still trying to stamp this out. Laura first pointed Richard in the direction of Bertha when he began teaching the class that would lead to his own book. She told him about the carriage house 
and how the burners were likely struggling with money. I myself was confused, though. If money were the object, wouldn't it make more sense to continue to get a consistent paycheck rather than a one-time large payout? Wouldn't Bertha want to get money consistently? For Laura, this is where the brother comes in. Could it be that, that he got in trouble, right, and she needed money? He was gambling or he was, you know, somehow, because she's clearly very attached to her mother and brother. And as Jane's secretary, Bertha has an intimate knowledge of her personal correspondence, who she writes to, and even more importantly, what she writes about. She writes a lot. How much she's looking forward to being with Leland Sr. and Leland Jr. She believes in heaven. She believes she's going to see them when she dies. So she writes about this in kind of a morbid way, right? That, that you know, she's so tired and it's so hard and, you know, she misses them so much. And so I, I could imagine in my mind being Bertha Burner and thinking that this was mercy killing, right? Okay. You know, she really wants to be with them. And, oh, I have this problem, <laughs> right, with my own family. And if I had that money, right, it'd be so easy. And she really does want to meet them in heaven yeah. and so I could imagine sort of psychologically that she could get herself into a place where this was okay but at the end of the day Laura isn't sure that it's Bertha she acknowledges that it's unlikely we'll ever know the truth for sure well I'm not sure she did I just as I said she's got you know she's got opportunity there's no doubt about it but you know maybe she's maybe she didn't do it because she doesn't, to your point, there are lots of reasons not to. There's sort of an equal number of reasons to kill her or not kill her. It's never really rational to murder anybody, but that you write pros and cons here. Yeah. You a list, getting arrested, getting hung. I mean, it's a capital punishment in California, right? but we still do, right? Click, 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 you know, scandal, disgrace, execution, It, you know. Or $15,000. I mean, just anyway, it, it's not, I don't think we know. I, don't, I, I really don't feel like we have any idea who killed her. But some have thought about trying to find out at least one facet of the truth, confirming for sure whether or not Jane was poisoned. When Robert Cutler's book came out, a Stanford faculty member wanted to exhume Jane and test her hair samples. Ultimately, the president of the university at the time said no, that he believed it wouldn't bring her any justice and would just disturb Jane when she finally was at peace. And he isn't the only one who thought so. Someone who arguably has more at stake in the case than most doesn't think an answer is possible. And any attempt to get one wouldn't do much good. It's late October, and I'm driving through the wealthy Bay Area enclave of Los Gatos with my podcast manager, Matt. I've never been to Los Gatos, even though it's right in my backyard, and I was quickly struck by the adorable craftsman homes set atop the windy hills. We're searching for a gate. I have an address, but the instructions given to me by the person we're going to meet told me I would have to enter a code for a gate. Finally, after circling around a cul-de-sac, I see it. An open, slightly disheveled gate that led to a dirt path. 
since we hadn't seen anything else matching the description I was given. We go forward and hit a second pair of gates. This time, I need the code. I felt like I was heading into some sort of Goonies-type adventure as we were buzzed in and climbed the winding, steep road up the side of the hill. On one side was a glorious view of the Bay Area with a sheer drop beneath us. On the other, signs were tacked onto the fence of the hill. The typical caution or safety signs are soon replaced by kookier novelty examples. Anger management classes really piss me off. Or, warning, unattended children will be sold to the circus. I later confirmed that our host was responsible for the decorations. When we reached the top, the hounds were released upon us. I'm exaggerating. Actually, we wouldn't see the hounds, two adorable and massive German shepherds, until later. Our welcoming party was an excited little mixed pooch, Lily, and a wagging lab, Corey. We barely made it out of the car before they had set upon us with affection. As a dog lover, I was not inconvenienced. Hi, hi, hi. Oh, what a cute puppy. Do you want to get out so that they'll follow you up so we we can pull in? Okay. Okay. Hi, buddy. Hi, puppers. Hi there. Hi. Oh, no, no. Don't go in the car. Okay, come on. Come on. Let's go, guys. Let's go. Then I spotted our host. Decked out in cardinal red and a red sweater vest and sporting a Stanford Daily baseball cap with a fringe of white hair peeking out. Dyer Stickney greeted us with enthusiasm. He first complimented Matt's accessories. I like the socks with the tent. Nice going, guy. You know what? You're really styling. A a gentleman who appreciates shoes and socks is my kind of guy. I didn't didn't shake your hand. I was so distracted by the dogs. You guys have business cards? If the name Dyer doesn't sound familiar, then I apologize. Dyer was the name of Jane Stanford's father. It's a family name. This Dyer, current day Dyer, is Jane Stanford's great-grandnephew. He is the great-grandson of Charles, Jane's brother and right-hand man at the university. Since Jane had no surviving children of her own, Charles' descendants are the closest family members of Jane's that I can find. We met his twin daughter and son, 29, who were on their way out the door on their way to work. After we exchanged pleasantries, he led us past the driveway. His home at the top of that hill gave an epic view of the Bay Area. The cities on the peninsula stretched before us, framed by the indigo water of the bay. The house itself was an old school Roman style mansion. It lacked the ostentatious size and embellishments of some of the bay's wealthiest enclaves. You could tell by looking at its columns, its inner courtyard, and the rectangular pool in front of the house that this home had been built to be kept in the family for some time. According to Dyer, the house had been built in the early 1900s, and it showed. The inside was even more stately than the exterior. A hallway gave way to a library, bedrooms, and a large dining room with countless antiques rounding out the interior. Some were Jane's. Others, according to Dyer, had been picked up along the way. Unlike the few larger mansion-style homes I had been to in my life, this had a comfortable, lived-in atmosphere. That regardless of the antiques, this was a home. We needed a place with outlets for our equipment, so we retired to the far less grand but much homier kitchen. 
Inside, we were overwhelmed with more of Dyer's quirky signs. On the walls, above the doors, and as magnets on the fridge. This was a man clearly with a sense of humor and whimsy, which he exuded throughout our conversation. This booklet is is Jane Stanford's medicine booklet. Yes. Okay. How did you first find it? We have trunks from them that have been in storage for a day or two. A day or two. Okay. And it is my goal to go through them because it'll be a monumental job because there's that many. Sure, yeah. But it's there. It's there in history and it's safe and it needs to be brought forward. I met Dyer through two of his cousins, one of which I found during my Ancestry.com searches. Marla invited me out to her home in Carson City, Nevada, a couple of months before I met Dyer. Marla and her sister Shelley are also descendants of Jane's brother, Charles. Marla is the enthusiastic genealogist of the cousins. While she only had a few items left that had belonged to Jane, the extensive and elaborate family trees she'd compiled told me more about the family's origins than I'd previously learned. Dyer, on the other hand, isn't as involved in genealogy, but he has a lot of Jane's stuff, trunks of it. He admitted that he hasn't had the time or the energy to go through everything yet, but on a whim, a couple of decades ago, he pulled out a small leather-bound book. And this is the book he plopped in front of me at his kitchen table. The leather binding was crumbling away, And inside was a notebook of thin, faded paper, covered in Jane's spidery handwriting. This book contains Jane's prescriptions and notes from her doctors and pharmacists. This is the first truly, truly personal thing of Jane's I've seen while doing this project. Her correspondence, all her letters, were always meant to be read by someone else. And she notably burned a lot of Leland's letters when he died. I'm not sure if she ever kept a diary, but this book is something she kept logs in just for her, no one else. Look at how bright the 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 ink is still so like incredibly bright. I mean, I'm so amazed. Yeah, this is from July 27th, 1900, and it's still so pristine. That's incredible. So you took this out years ago. Yes. Yeah. Have you taken anything else out? I probably have. I, I think, I, I, think I, I, I put back in one of the trunks because I saw the value. Okay, so, you know, of all of the things you could have pulled out, what attracted you to this? I have no idea. It could have been, it could have been the binder. Okay. It could have been the, it was the first thing I reached to. Touching its pages felt almost inappropriate, like I was invading her privacy. But just in my initial flip through, I got a sense for what health issues she might have been struggling with. And even more interesting, what medicine she was taking. For sleeplessness, when unable to go to sleep on retiring all night, put the feet into hot water for 10 minutes. This will have a soothing effect. If, however, you go to sleep soon, then wake up and unable to go to sleep again, feeling restless and uncomfortable, take a dose of the... Valerian? Valerium. Okay, so that... Is it root? Does it say root after it? No, it just says valerian, so... See? 
It does. Yeah. To have the body well rubbed with olive oil <laughs> once a day for three or four weeks does much to strengthen the nerves. This is so interesting. This is so interesting. Oh my God. Medicine back then was just, yeah, a lot of like superstitions, apothecary type yes. things. Okay, for nervousness, take belladonna three times a day. What is belladonna? I don't know. Computer, what's belladonna? From news.com. Belladonna is an extract of the deadly nightshade plant. By the way, you have a new notification. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> no, thank you. Okay, so it's technically kind of a poison. So take belladonna three times a day. Attenuating if with four doses of coffee the following day, wait two days and then take arsenicum. Is that a way of saying arsenic? This is crazy. Okay. All right. (laughs) I'm going to get way too deep in this. Already, I'm enthralled by the strange tinctures and treatments that seemed relatively common back then and by the number of treatments that involved some kind of poison, arsenic and belladonna so far. We learned a lot about poison in the last episode, including how some poisons were used for different purposes back then. So this doesn't appear all that unusual, given the time period. Jane's book is divided into different categories, nerves, burning, miscellaneous, and even a section for Leland as well. It's clear based on the myriad of dates and slight differences in handwriting that she'd used this book for years. Nowhere that I could see did it mention bicarbonate of soda or the cascara laxative, but I'm guessing even Jane didn't always write everything down. And this is just one of the things in the trunks Dyer has in his attic. He let me peek into one that he'd brought down into a spare room and it was filled to the brim with letters, pictures, and illustrations. Despite their obvious historical value, he was reluctant to give them to the university. And I was always going to, to and still will one day, get to those trunks. <laughs> I think and, you will. And, and, and I believe I will. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but, but there they are. I don't necessarily trust the university because they have a propensity to... They sell things. Apparently over the years, when Dyer and other members of his family have given Jane and Leland's old belongings to the university, they've discovered some of those items up for sale later on. Marla and Shelley, his cousins I met in Nevada, had a similar story about a gorgeous set of silverware they donated to the university that they thought might be displayed. But as of right now, they aren't sure what happened to it. Well, with paintings and artwork and... and People that donate family items, they they have a in the fine print. They can actually send it to auction. Really? Truly, still truly. I've actually many many years ago seen it, witnessed it. Like uh, Barbara. A, a painting, okay. uh, paintings from the family that were donated to the university, uh, and then there were also a lot of items. And you'd have to ask the university about this, but after the '89 quake. The museum, a lot of the things in the museum found different avenues. Different avenues, like... They were they either in storage or they've been sold. Do you feel that Stanford hasn't really 
I guess, respected the legacy as much as they could have? That's a great question. <laughs> it really is. I'd like to answer this by the following. I believe Stanford is amazing. It's forward thinking. It's moving on some of the cutting edges of not only technology, but other fields, and it needs to be respected. At the same time, I believe that there is a, a certain amount of history that needs to be preserved for future generations, and they have the capacity, the funding, and the maturity to set these things in storage safely. And I would like to see that um, for future generations. So 100 years from now, people can go and archive, classrooms can go, you know what, we could, oh, this is amazing, this is amazing, this is phenomenal thing, instead of just letting them go. Yeah. And that's where I'd like to see the, the picture, kind of a balance. Dyer has tangled with the university on these things for decades now. As things stand, he feels safer keeping Jane and Leland's belongings with him. But the treasures in his attic aren't the only things he was given by his ancestors. The others, the family lore. I do know the stories, and I'm sure you do too, that when um, there was a dinner parties, they would pass Leland Jr. in a silver tray around or have people... This is, you know, this is our baby. I mean... I did not know that. Yes, they did. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay, so they'd present him to guests on a silver tray as if On a silver... Well, it was actually a, a silver... I want you to think of a silver recess bowl for safety. Okay. With lots of, lots of um, uh, cotton or silk. So it was really comfortable. And, and so the nanny would, would come like this and they would... Oh, just go in from chair to chair to chair to chair around the table. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's uh, one way to entertain your guests. Well, I, I'm just, you know... It's Must just, have been a very well-behaved baby. Well, from what I understand from the family lore, he actually was really a brilliant young boy. Yeah. And it was a tragedy that, that he left so early. But this is what we were told in... Dyer appears to be in his 60s or 70s at this point. And although his mother lived to be a remarkable hundred years and just passed away in the last couple of years, his memories of the family lore are a bit fuzzy at times. But he does remember things more vividly from his childhood, particularly the house Charles Lathrop, Jane's brother and Dyer's great-grandfather, had on Stanford's campus. My mom had to... to um, they grew up in Alda Vista, I'm sure you've heard that name before. Yes. Okay. And as a little boy, my mother one time took me there. Oh, okay. Because it broke her heart because they they demoed the home. But she walked me through where the the garage was, and there were still the remains of the garage and the and the grounds and the mechanics of it and what the place must have looked like. And that's why you have the name the farm. Yeah. That's where that came from. He had a complete farm up there, Charles. For horses, right? Well, the horses were down below, but we're talking about everything, a complete farm, so they were self-serving. Oh, okay, so they grew their own food and everything? Well, they didn't grow their own food, but they had it grown, yes. Okay, so the servants grew the food for the family. <laughs> uh, yes. Okay, so 
Why did the house wind up getting getting torn down? Marla and Shelley told me a little bit about it, but I thought you might know a bit more. What I do know is secondhand, you know, my mother sharing it. Yeah. Basically, there was a rush to get all the furniture they could get out. And then, as I understand it, they didn't demolish, they didn't demo the house, they burned the house. The Stanford officials did. Why? I couldn't tell you. You'd have to ask Stanford officials. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely... There was, at the time, the uh, wood and, and the stonework and the things that were there, oh... It's beautiful, it, I imagine. It, it was. It was a 63-room home on top of the hill overlooking the university. Yeah. Oh, that's tragic. I, I, yeah, I can't imagine the reasoning behind burning it. They burned it, and then the thought process then, as I understood it secondhand, please, is that they put up think tanks, individual pods, so professors could go and think, create, and... It was a philosophy that, that actually didn't work, but nonetheless, excuse me, I can't say that for certain, but okay. apparently it didn't bear a lot of fruit. The family, Dyer and his cousins, have managed to hold onto a couple pieces of property in downtown San Francisco that belonged to the Stanfords. That's pretty much all that's left. But what happened to their old home, that wasn't all that Dyer's mother had told him. They knew. The whole family knew Jane's death was not due to natural causes. Did your family ever talk about, you know, about Jane's death in particular? Yes. Okay. They, they, uh, they were convinced it was the, the family, as my mother would say, was very suspicious of, I can't think of her name. Was it the secretary? I can't think of Bertha Burner. Birth, thank you. <laughs> I didn't want to feed you the answer, but yeah. Okay, so they, they were convinced it was Bertha. Well, they were suspicious, so they had private detectives on her tail. This is, again, family lore. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm okay. interested in the family lore. And then they were also suspicious of the university, the way they handled themselves. It was quite unusual. Yeah. So there, there was two different thoughts there. I have no idea. Okay. But I, I do know that apparently she did ring out that she was poisoned before she died. According to Dyer, the family also suspected Bertha of pilfering a certain piece of jewelry of Jane's when she died, although he couldn't recall more details than that. But despite hearing about this throughout his childhood, the story of Jane's murder never having been solved, Dyer isn't burning to uncover the truth as much as some might be. There's one professor who wants to take a sample of uh, Jane's remains and test it to see if there's strychnine there. Fascinating. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's gonna happen. The university said no, that they don't wanna disturb her. Uh, yeah, I can... Well, my question would be, now, what would be the end result? I mean, some certainty. Okay, I mean, I got that. But does it change history? I suppose not. 
Instead, I asked Dyer how he felt he was keeping Jane's legacy, her story, close to him. And this is what he had to say. Um, my family taught me to love and to be loved. And I'm carrying that forward to my children. And hopefully they're going to carry it forward to their children. I think Jane would have appreciated this. After all, everything she accomplished, she did for her family, her husband and her son. They were at the heart of everything for her. Although her son couldn't have a family of his own, perhaps she would have found solace that some of her relations understand how meaningful it is to have a family. As we said our goodbyes that afternoon, Dyer ruminated again on the trunks in his attic. He'd get to them someday. And when he did, he said, I was welcome to come back. Jane's body was laid to rest in Palo Alto on March 24, 1905. More than 7,000 mourners watched as her body entered the Memorial Church on Stanford's campus for the funeral. Despite the touching and emotional service, chaos still reigned in the wake of her murder. The press was still doggedly insistent that Jane had been poisoned, while David Starr Jordan continued to insist the opposite. But not an evil mastermind or even a skilled liar, he often contradicted himself in his statements to the newspapers, making an even bigger mess of things than there was before. At one point, he even accused the doctors in Hawaii of fabricating the poisoning story, while those very doctors kept making public statements, asserting that poison was, in fact, Jane's cause of death. Despite all of this, the police officially ended their investigation just a few days before Jane's funeral, ruling her death natural. The matter, at least for now, was closed. On the next and final episode of Bitter Academia, we learn how the rumblings after Jane's death didn't stop with the police investigation, but would stop due to something even bigger. Though so the 1906 earthquake is one of the best known and best studied earthquakes in the world, and we're, new, we're still learning new things about it even today, more than 100 years later. The 1906 earthquake that decimated San Francisco and a good portion of Stanford's campus would claim some of the last physical vestiges of Jane's life all except one, which I will visit to truly get a picture of who Jane was. In life, not in death. Because this was such a, a special place for her. And we do, you know, upstairs sometimes when we're opening up and lights flicker, we'll say, good morning, Jane, just pretending she's here. Because, you know, she, I mean, this was, a, you know, her son, the one son, her one and only son she loved so much was born in this house. And I would think she would have a special, obviously she did have a special connection with the house, so. Bitter Academia is an Odyssey original podcast, researched, reported, written, and narrated by me, Natalia Gravich. Edited by Myron Kaplan and Matt Pittman. Production, engineering, and sound design by Matt Pittman. Myron Kaplan is Odyssey's managing producer for national podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Bitter Academia on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.